Hello, and welcome to Our Trash Runneth Over. We have a name. A name? This is uh, our offshoot podcast from the Babylon Project, where our trash will liter- literally runneth over into a new podcast feed, where we are going to talk about literature and comics, I guess, whatever the fuck we want to talk about. Uh, that's where it's running over into. Uh, all the stuff that's not quite horny enough for Babpod, but is way too horny for complete discography. <laughs> that is exactly the right description we're looking for. Yeah, that is the 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 Venn diagram of, of where this podcast lands. We Tonight, we are continuing our Goblinography series with episode two, covering Witness for the Dead by Catherine Addison. Uh, if you have not listened to the first episode, this will probably be surprising and spoiler filled. So maybe go back and listen to the first one, which you can find on the new Our Trash Runneth Over feed that Aaron kindly set up for us with art by Anna. It looks great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I drew a thing. It has it has little books trying to stab each other. There's a giant barrel of Mountain Dew flavored lube. <laughs> it's great. Yep. It's it's everything we love. Um before we dive into the summary, uh <laughs> I'm sorry, have we already made gonna... the Baja blast your back out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think that may have actually pre preceded the Baja Blast Lou. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That may have been sort of the predecessor to that joke. But I'll be honest with you, it's so long ago. <laughs> I don't know where the joke really like other than that, it was like a single shit post that somehow, like, yeah. we all kept returning to. Okay. Yeah. We might call this event I- the Baja Blast Off. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the episode it happened in. I just don't remember, like, <laughs> what happened. Yeah, the context. It was the episode where uh, Garibaldi and Franklin uh, have their first uh, detective bro outing. Oh, yeah. The okay. one where they eat the fucking Nutrigrain bars. Yep. Yep. <laughs> And he, and they show up, uh, Franklin shows up, th- and I made a joke that Franklin showed up thinking it was going to be a different sort of outing than it was. <laughs> okay. And he brought along, you know, showed up with a bunch of lube. Um, anyway. anyway. Sorry, I immediately distracted us. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's what we're here for. Now that we've recapped the shit posting from our other podcast feed, now, previously now on. Now that we have demonstrated the trash running over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. As with our last episode, joining us this evening, uh, I'm Jude. I am your host, I guess. I did the You're intro. You're the hostess with the mostest, Jude. The voice of my uh, interrogator and mock mocker is my co-host from Babpod, Anna. Anna, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Anna. Um, I'm on both Bab. Bab- and complete discography and you know live to make jude's life a living hell sometimes or at least mock him incessantly much to aaron's satisfaction i'm sure <laughs> uh we also have returning from last time uh michael and scott michael what do i have to say about myself um well i'm drawing a blank I don't. I don't have anything planned. To You're say here. Michael's a man yeah, of sure. mystery. Man of mystery. Yeah, sure. Let's let's go with that. Um, that sounds that sounds fun. Michael's a man of mystery. Uh, that sounds like something we might call back uh, to in two hours. Yeah, not appearing on your your favorite or not favorite social network, um, or any podcast except for this one. We have an exclusive on Michael's. Right. Opinion. Right. Also, I'll uh, does it does it 
would would my participation make Canadian content? I forget the rules. Yes. There we go. Yes, okay. I'm pretty sure. Sure, why yeah. not? So, so that'll be the fun Dope. part. Uh, and Scott, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, I am Scott Paladin. I am technically not a member of the OK So Network, but it's getting harder and harder to convince people of that. Um, I'm uh, you can find me on all those anywhere anywhere you search for Scott Paladin you'll find me except for uh, uh, there what I am not I, I took over another guy's IMDB page it used to be his credits and now it's mine I colonized them it's great <laughs> nice <laughs> um, we'll put all of your socials mm-hmm. to all of your great work uh, in the show notes awesome. witness for the dead is book one of the series that is now referred to as the cemeteries of Amalo. It did not have that name when it began. Uh, this book started as, according to the author, Raymond Chandler with elves, which I think is really appropriate considering that the goblin emperor started out as elves and steampunk, which yeah. seems to kind of be how she writes this series, which is just like elves and genre. Yep. Yep. Yeah. As she refers to it, the, the character of Kalahar presented himself <laughs> um, and it didn't really end up very Chandler-esque, which is true. Uh, I don't think there's anything particularly noir about Kalahar. Oh, oh no, I would no, say that. he's actually. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He is, he is absolutely yeah. like dyed in the wool noir detective. Like yeah, this, 100%. Like, like that's one of the things I was going to say is that like, you know, the, you know, I felt like, you know, one of the things that really helps with the mindset on this book as you're reading it is that you can't jump into it thinking, this is going to be a fantasy novel. You have to jump into it saying, this is a noir detective story. Yeah. It's just set in a fantasy universe with elves. Yep. Yeah. And I guess it's not also, it's also not written, and we'll get into this, but it's not written in a noir pastiche. It's got its own tone. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't read like a noir pulp novel. So yeah. the some of the noirness doesn't doesn't read noir right away. But I think sure. that the, I, we'll yeah, there. we can t- we can get into it after the summary though. Yeah. Uh there is a there are two more books in this series. The second one, uh The Grief of Stones is already out as of the recording and the third one is apparently done or close to the author has made some comments on her Patreon to that effect. We have more, obviously, more tidbits to share as we go down, but that's kind of it. We we don't have any fascinating audiobook insights or anything like that for this one. Other than it has a different narrator. Yes, it has a different narrator um, who I think is fantastic, and we are going to get into that later. I, I have a my personal definitive ranking of audiobook narrators that have been covered on Our Trash Runneth Over, uh, which I look forward to discussing, so we'll get there. <laughs> With our two data points. Yes. We can make a line from those. Yeah. That's not true. We 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 te- technically we moved we moved the complete thanatography into the our trash runneth over feed. So oh true. Uh, Moira Quirk counts as a our trash runneth over narrator. As well. Oh okay okay. So there's three. All right, I think I've got the summary right. Yep, go for it. So now that we're done with the Goblin Emperor, we're moving away from Ketho and Maya, and following, we're following Tharak Helahar as he returns to Malo. He's been sent there by the Archprelate, as the city does not have a witness for the dead who can, you know, actually speak to the dead. And the Archprelate hopes that he can reduce the chaos in the, quote, nest of vipers that is the Amalo Yulanense. 
His political position in the city is fraught with a large faction of the Yolanense doubting that he actually has supernatural abilities um, and also ambiguity whether he's at the very top or the very bottom of the pecking order of prelates. Despite all this, Thera has settled into a routine with an office where he receives petitions, a tiny apartment, and a number of street cats who he feeds sardines to every night. The events of the book kick off in earnest as Thara receives several petitions for matters needing his attention. He is attempting to find the grave of a woman named Inshiran Ermanejan at the request of her siblings. The family lost co- contact with her after a very swift marriage, but received a letter from her with news that she was pregnant, followed by a letter from her husband informing them of her death, but not the location of her grave or the surrounding circumstances or details on the funeral. Especially since the husband then immediately vanished, and Chiran's siblings believe that she was murdered. He is also petitioned by the police chief, Azan Harad, to identify a woman who was washed up on the banks of the city canal. Thara is unable to identify her immediately, but discovers where she entered the water, and that she was murdered, not only pushed in, but also struck on the head. This leads them to discover that he, she was a talented but abrasive singer at the Vermilion Opera, named Arpanean Shelson. To discover Min Shelson's murderer, Thera begins his investigations at the opera with the help of its principal director and composer, Iana Pelthenior. And Dreamboat. <laughs> True, yes. Help. Yes, that too. <laughs> that, that we'll get into. It's quickly discovered that Min Shelson was stealing gowns from the opera, exploiting her su- suitors and patrons for lavish gifts, and financially ruining them in the process, and up to her pointy ears in gambling debts, and blackmailing many of the staff and singers in the opera. Uh leading to many, many potential murderers on the field. Thara also finds Inshiran's grave, uh, which gives the first leads to her fate. She was, in fact, murdered with Kalinvar, a poison that mimics enteric fever, and thus is very hard to detect. Thara is interrupted from pursuing these leads when he receives yet another petition, this time to determine which of the two wills of businessman Nepana Duhalar is fraudulent, the one naming his first son as heir, or the one naming a younger son. Although Thar is skeptical that he'll be able to make a connection to the remains, he receives an answer immediately. The younger son is the heir. The eldest son, Nepovis, is furious about his exposure as a fraud and files a complaint with Prince, claiming that Thar himself is a fraud and demanding trial by ordeal. Sends Thar out of town to deal with the matter in Tanbro, hoping that things will quiet down in Amalo by the time that Thar returns. Meta in Tanvaro turns out to be a ghoul, which Thara successfully quiets, unfortunately not before it ate at least two people, and also ruining his favorite frock coat in the process. He leaves instructions for how the town can prevent further ghouls from rising, evades the mayor's request that he stay on there as prelate, and heads back to the city. Upon Thara's return, he finds that things did not, in fact, cool down in his absence. Um, the Amalathala, the head of all the prelates, is now involved in the situation with the Duhalata, and it appears that Thara must actually undergo trial by ordeal. He must spend a night on the Hill of Werewolves, which is rumored to be haunted. And haunted it is, not by a single person, but by a whole battle full of ghosts. Thara survives with his wits intact and returns to his investigations. Thara manages to track down Inshiran's murderer, who had poisoned at least two previous wives and was wooing a fourth, 
by identifying his first victim and thus his name, with also finding a Maza who could use that name to find the man magically. His investigations also reveal that Min Shelson was murdered by fellow singer Tura Alora, who was left a large bequest by his uncle, none other than Nepena Duhaler and whom Min Shelson attempted to blackmail for a substantial sum using the identity of Alora's lover. After this is revealed, Alora flees the room and jumps to his death in hopes of protecting the reputation of his lover and seeing no other options. And that's, and that's the book pretty much. There's, there's one more, there's one more major event that we're missing. Oh, the airship fire. The airship fire. Yeah. That, um, yeah, there's one, there's one other thing that, I didn't cover because it's not kind of one of the major mysteries. Mm, true, true. But, um, and, you know, I, none of y'all want me to monologue for half an hour and the audio ex- book exists for a reason. So, yeah, one other one other major event, which is that um, when he comes, when he's in Tanvro, the h- town historian requests that he deliver a letter to his estranged granddaughter, which he does. And in the process of that, um, he's... His the granddaughter works at an airship factory, which explodes while Kalahar is there, and he has to you know deal with that TM. Yeah, where to begin with this book? I think let's start with our protagonist because I think this book is so much far Kalahar mm. in yeah. the sense that uh, it, it works because of who he is and how compelling a character he is, and especially. You know, in contrast to the Goblin Emperor, Goblin Emperor, we very much have internality from Maya, but it's third person. Mm. But here we're first person. Yeah. We we yeah. are directly in Thara's head. Yeah. 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 And hearing his voice in his own words. Yeah. Yeah. I love, so my note on this is, uh, Goblin Emperor, Maya is the saddest boy. Witness for the dead. Hold my tea. <laughs> because damn you think you've met the saddest elf protagonist that this author could come up with and then thara kelahar comes along and he is just a fucking hot mess <laughs> yeah from the tip of his ears to the tails of his black silk coat of office which he talks about all the time because he only has one and he's so poor one of his many problems but yet that's like not one of the ones you care about. Yeah. I mean, what you really care about is that he is horrifically traumatized and to the, to the degree that he can't fathom that anyone being nice to him is doing it for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Who else does that sound that we know? <laughs> except, except it's like, you know, yeah, yes. Also, but like it, they have different approaches to it too. It's like Kelahar is, suspicious in different ways Mm. yeah maya very much is a i have walked into a political nightmare and i don't know who to trust kelahar is everyone hates me Mm. and i just assume everyone hates me for one of the following reasons i talk to dead people i'm a priest of the dead everyone hates the priests of the dead just kind of on on social merit also I'm gay and I have no idea who knows that. Also, I solved a crime in the city and that's dubiously popular or unpopular. Who knows? Like <laughs> what's funny is he has valid reasons, but yet he's surrounded by people that are kind to him and he still operates under the assumption that everyone thinks he's scum. 
Yeah. And mm. like the only the only people who I think like really actually dislike him. I think we only encountered two characters. Um Venezar, the other the other prelate of Ulysses. Mm. Um Zanarin. Mm-hmm. Zanarin. Yeah. yeah. And arguably, I don't think Venezar hates him. Yeah. I think he's just and un- this, is, this is gonna go to the nest of vipers plot. I think Venezar Venezar just sees him as an insult to, and a threat to his political position in the city. Yeah. If he were in a logical and expected place in the hierarchy and not a threat. Vernezar wouldn't give two shits about Kelahar. He wouldn't be on his fucking radar. Yeah. Whereas, uh, what's her name? The other one, Zanarin has some like active hatred of wit- of witnesses, which is wild to me. Uh, and when we get to the world building section, yeah. I want to talk about this. It's wild to me, but she does have like an active dislike of him simply for having a, a gift well, that he thinks everyone hates him for. I mean, she thinks that he's a snake oil salesman, basically. Mm. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. like, you know, as far as I can tell, that's the vibe is like, she thinks that, you know, she thinks that he is just there, like, being a fucking grifter. Mm. Until it's convenient for her to abuse his gift in a heinous way. And then she's more than willing to to do that. When the yeah. when when the uh the the zeppelin explodes and she's just like here relive all these people's final in you know flaming moments of life when the bodies aren't over cold yet. and over and over again yeah yeah well and this is, and this is where like not to not to you know speak up for her in any way but like I feel like that actually dovetails together fairly well because she doesn't think it's like any more traumatic than it is for her to be in mm. that room because he, you know, she doesn't believe she fully believes that he can't fucking talk to the dead and that when he touches people nothing happens good point so yeah. it's like you know from dara's perspective this is like horrifyingly traumatizing and from her perspective she's like i'm sure like who gives a shit if like you know because this guy, this guy's powers don't work anyway and he's just like faking the pain that's the yeah. thing like, I really no. got to wonder about that scene, that to what degree is Kelhar showing the difficulty of doing all that, of just reliving, you know, the very recent uh, deaths of these people? And then how would that affect, you know, his body language, say? What's happening with his ears? Uh, what's happening sure. with his arms, yeah. you know? Well, like, shouldn't there be like a hint of like, yeah, this part sucks. Well, and also, like, isn't that something that happens to him after, like, hasn't he been on the road for a couple of days and fought the ghoul? And, like, this is, like, the, <laughs> yeah. the latest in a long, long line of, of shit that's gone wrong. And he hasn't even, yeah. like, had a night's rest yet. Practically. He yeah. He, he hasn't even been to bed yet. He's literally been back long enough to put, like, to get a a a, pro, an, a, a coat appropriate to his station on. And then he gets damn near blown up. Like <laughs> it's been a rough couple of days. Although it definitely says something that of all of the shit he goes through. It seems like the mustard yellow coat is one of the things that throws him off the most. Right. <laughs> he spends right? more time complaining about that than like losing sleep or nearly dying. You know, because yeah. that's that's one of the worst things in his life is is constantly having to deal with people judging him. 
Everybody's yeah. judging him for being a witness for the dead. So he better at least be a good witness for the dead and, you know, wear the clothes of a because there's nothing wrong with him wearing a mustard yellow waistcoat. Like, in theory, I mean, it's, you know, maybe thematically inappropriate, but like, whatever. He, he needs to be clothed and go around. Is. Yeah. Yeah. For him, it's unbecoming of his station. Exactly. When I was yeah. re- when I was reading this the first time, I will admit that I had a like real a, a really desperate hope that like Pelthenior would see him in that mustard yellow <laughs> jacket and either be like, "Oh, honey, you look fabulous in that," or like, "Oh, honey, that looks terrible, but that will look great on me." <laughs> yes, <laughs> or on my on, on my bedroom floor, really. <laughs> that too. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's talk about the good people in. Kelhar's life because there are a number of them so many um, so many okay so we'll my, start with the cats <laughs> i do love that the thing that is like most the thing we learn initially about Kelahar is that his life is very he's built this little routine for himself that involves these cats and i love how much he respects the cats mm-hmm. yeah he's like they're not my cats they're i don't own them yeah yeah. They are they are their own creatures. I'm not going to give them names. That's not for me to do. However, These I will are... give them sardines and pet them. Yes. I will give them sardines and I will pet them and I will let I will I will let them, you know, do their thing, but god, they're so they're so good. Yeah, I there's so many good good characters in this. I think and don't get me wrong, I love Pelthenior, but my favorite of his friends is uh, like of all the of all the people that he works with that he's friendly with. His, my favorite is the uh, the prelate of Yulvanensi. Yeah, Anora. Um, yeah, Anora, who is this tall rail fit? Apparently, this tall like sort of bedraggled looking half goblin. With big spectacles, which is such an interesting sight. That's not at all how I pictured him when we, they were first interacting. Every time I listen to the book, I have to remind myself that's what he looks like. Yeah. But I love their relationship. Anora is so caring and careful with Kalahar. So cautious to like not push too hard, but is so concerned with his well-being. It's really sweet to see. I kept seeing her as a contrast. I feel like Addison is saying, no, no, there are, in fact, like good priests who take their role very seriously as caring for the people around them. Um, and, and that functions as, as a strong contrast versus, versus uh, Zanarin and like the entire rest of the upper function, the upper scales of the uh, Amalo's nest of vipers. Yeah. Right. That. The Enora's like just there doing the everyday work. There's some great stuff in the next book where yeah. they are they have cause to discuss the sort of the the theor- the philosophical underpinnings behind what what they believe about their their practice as priests of the dead. That is so good. Uh just really, really interesting. Get show some that the the author has really give, given a lot of thought to what Someone like Anora, what it is, he's not just a cemetery manager. Yeah. Like there is, 
real ritual and worship to what he does. And I think that's super cool that she thought that through. And yeah, I, I, it'll be, I can't wait until we get to the next book and Scott and mm-hmm. Michael can see more of Anora because we only see the th- sort of like tip of the iceberg on that friendship in totally. this one. Yeah. Um, partly, I think that they're still developing that friendship that we see in the next book, but I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait until you guys read that and see, see how you feel about Anora. Yeah. He's great. I also like what I will call sort of the, cast of support characters that he has around him Mm -hmm. the widows and uh other women that work in the map makers office that are all super friendly and helpful oh yeah and like all these other people that he runs into like the um the the cleric of casivo um and these other people that they all think he's great they think he's super conscientious and dutiful and he it never occurs to him (laughs) seemingly (laughs) to take that into account when he's like hmm i wonder if that person hates me reflexively Hmm." (laughs) like god man there's an interesting commonality amongst a bunch of the characters who really like him not all of them of course but the ones who sort of look to what they do in life as the way he does about a calling Somebody who like mm-hmm. looks at a job or the tasks ahead of them and says, okay, this is important to be done well, and I'm the person that's going to do it, and I'm going to put my all into it, whether or not it is it is uh, rewarding for me or not. Um, so like even the the twins who help him the, with the uh, with the uh, mm-hmm. the ghoul are, just treat things like that way and and noticeably get along with him immediately and treat him very well and like that's a that's a really common theme amongst the people that that. Um, Galahar gets along with that like people who kind of share his outlook and it doesn't seem he doesn't seem to ever notice it but it's definitely something that all of them <laughs> seem to do with 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 a couple of notable exceptions maybe just because of the flamboyance yeah. of some of the other characters but it's like he, he it's something that he remarks upon over and over and over again but never like but never internalizes mm-hmm. yeah um, like he yeah. keeps remarking upon like you know wow the way that this person talks about the opera is awfully similar to how I think about, you know, my calling as a priest of Euless, but like never like clicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even when he's talking about other priests, like when he talks about the priests of uh Kasaivo, the cleric of Kasaivo that he respects, uh the 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 mortuary master. Yeah. I need I should have I really should have put all these names up. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta say, this is like the downside to this book, like even more so than Goblin Emperor, the fucking names. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I'll admit, I, I have I no no idea what who anybody is. I know like the roles, names, gone. <laughs> this was that was exactly yeah. the thing though. Um I noticed this um while reading the book, it was harder to pick up on everybody's names because in Goblin Emperor Everybody also has a title, practically. Mm. You know, yep. you've got Lord Chancellor, you've got, um, you know, somebody Widow like... Empress. Uh, you know, yeah. the... Um, what's the title for... What, what's the specific title for a, a widowed empress? Um, Jasan? The Shani. The Shani, yes. Yeah. Uh, which now my brain was going like, wait, isn't that just like the name for the currency is zashan it's different uh one is 
one is with a J and the other is with a Z. Yeah, it's yeah. confusing, especially if you listen to the audiobook because the different narrators say it differently. Yeah, uh, and I think it's also interesting, and this is one of the real strengths of the world building of this book, is the in Goblin Emperor, you are getting not just elven culture, you are getting the purest form of elven culture. Mm. Even though Maya is half goblin, he is stepping into the most rarefied vein of goblin culture that there or of elven culture that there is. Whereas in Amalo, it's remote. It's as they say in the very at, at the top of the book, you know, when they refer when he comments on how he's referred, he's uh uh one of his, one of the titles that people refer to him as uh, is um uh, Othalo. 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 Yeah. Othalo, the, the Othalo title is a thing that, and this is, I'm sure, like a case where the author didn't come up with it until the last set, till writing the second book, but it, it works that out in the boonies, you have different cultural traditions than you do in the capital, in the palace. On top of which, it's a much more blended culture. Hmm. Almost while you do have Purells, there are far, far more goblins and part goblins and mixed goblin elf relationships in the in Amalo than there are in, are in the capital. So you get names like Pelthenior. Yeah. And you get and you you have names all over the place. So the na- the, the the linguistic conventions are all fucking any over the place. Uh so my only advice is I've listened to this book on audiobook like four times now. And that's the only way I remember anything when my brain works. It doesn't work because I am, as I was saying before the recording started, dealing with a historic stretch of of sleeplessness from my son. So uh, I haven't had a full night's sleep in like three weeks. So that's my excuse. But yeah, I think I I, I will grant you that if you had a problem with, with Goblin Emperor's density of uh, linguistic world building, boy, howdy. Let me tell you, the street by street directions that will crop up frequently <laughs> in this book, where it's just like, you know, General Pajada Square up to, you know, this this building in this square down to this river. And it's just all name, 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 name is just it's not going to help you none. Yeah. You got to just go with it. You got to just just let it let it roll over you and just embrace it because trying to trying to keep up with it's rough. Yeah, this is this is one where I've only listened to the audiobook and read the ebook. Um so I'm not sure if the paper version has a like glossary of names in the like a dramatis personae at the start. It does. Okay, good. Oh, okay. Cuz yeah. this is this is a book that like very much like benefits from having a dramatis personae and being like who the fuck was that? Yeah. And like <laughs> and yep. annotating it as you go. Uh-huh. It it is yes, helpful though that is. like there are these various points, and this, if we want to talk about the you know noir aspects, this is something that you know, I view as being a very noir thing. There are various points where Kelahar essentially pauses the narrative and takes stock of where he is and does a recap of his investigations. <laughs> Which I view as being a very noir thing of like, yeah. you know, you're sitting at, you're sitting, you know, you're, you're taking the moment to like recollect your thoughts and going over the case as it stands and like all of that. Um, and there, that I feel like is actually a very helpful thing for keeping on track is that there's like 
three or four of those throughout the book where it's just like a brief pause to like, here's what's happening in this case. Yeah. Well, and like it's the plot is interesting in the sense that it's kind of just a bunch of stuff that happens like the (laughs) right stuff, stuff is linked together, but not in a. Like there isn't a cohesive single singular arc. It's a bunch of yeah. it's this whole big messy story. Yeah. Like it you you don't you don't find out that like, you know, Min Shelson was killed because she found out about the, you know, serial killer with the Kalanvar and yeah. like also, you know, he was in the employ of the Duhalata or something. Like it's you know, it's not something like you do have a link like yeah. that. You know, Kalhar only figures out who killed Min Shelson because he's like, oh, wait, that 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 fucker was in that will. Yeah, <laughs> that that I was forced legally to come to the reading of yeah. shit. Yeah. OK. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's very much it's a it's a collection of vignettes almost. Yeah, I definitely get I definitely agree that there's there is a a narrative arc but I think it's less about the resolution of his cases and it's more about Kelahar dealing with the various problems and him getting to a certain point in his journey. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when he starts out, he's reached a sort of equilibrium. He is found, he's got his place in Amalo, mm-hmm. but he's very much like, that's it. He's there. He does his job and that's it. Yeah. And this book is very much to me about how he is sort of forced to make new connections in the city mm. with Iana and other places across the city and is forced to confront the idea that other people don't hate him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of the emotional story, like the emotional arc he takes. Uh, I feel like that's a lot more ambiguous. I'm not entirely sure that Kelhar is left with a resolution to that. I mean, I think that no, not yeah, for sure, not a resolution. He takes a he goes along a bit of a path in that direction, maybe, but but he's not there. He's taking his first steps, and yeah. and that's yeah. that that was something that I found both very satisfying and very frustrating with the book is that it feels like it's it feels a very realistic because things don't happen in a nice neat narrative structure they sort of happen as things that kelhart experiences mm-hmm. uh and then at the end we find a you know like once once kelhart pieces things together it's like oh that one's connected to that one and this one's connected to the other one and you know okay there's there's a bit of structure here but but in the meantime no we're sitting there going Okay, so we've got the murdered opera singer and we've got the, you know, murdered, you know, wife by poison. And then now we're getting weird drama with the, you know, city priesthood over, uh, you know, who want to mess with Kelhar because he doesn't fit neatly in their hierarchy. And it's like, I, it's all, it feels like it's all over the place. And they come back together and it's like, no, that actually does tie up into a narrative, but, but it feels more real for being a little disjointed. Yeah. 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 And that, that's one of the things that I, I think also makes it feel noir to me is that it's basically, it's almost a journal. Yeah. That the whole thing mm-hmm. is almost like Kelhar journaling this like really, really packed month, basically. Yeah. Or like two weeks. <laughs> 
and and also I, I I have to imagine the author is thinking of this as book number one a little bit that this is something you can get away with in book number one that if this was book number three such a scattershot plot may not fly for something that you've, mm. that you've had in motion that long uh, but for sort of setting the ground and showing us where the characters are and very uh, helpfully introducing us to the city and a bunch of the additional lore that wasn't shown off in in Goblin Emperor this. All, what happens is is an excellent way to do that. You know, gives us gets us really far afield and and to see a lot of things. Yeah. Believe it or not, this book was not intended to be book, a start of a series. It was intended to be a standalone when she sat down to write it. Mm. But by the time she was done, she was like, "Yeah, no, we got more to do here. Yeah. Not do, not done with this character." It's it's been funny because the the receptions that I've like reviews and receptions I've seen and stuff like that for this book prior to when Grief of Stones came out versus after Grief of Stones was like announced and came out, there's like a dichotomy there that that I've seen a bunch of reviews from like early on when it was not clear that there were going to be accompanying books that were just like, what the fuck this is like, this is not Goblin Emperor. Right. Yeah. You know, like, you know, this is a different genre. Like it doesn't go anywhere. What the fuck? This is a terrible book. Which like, I think that that's a little bit unfair in that like, yes, it is a different genre and you have to judge it by that genre and acknowledge that you're listening that you're reading a different genre but like but also i think when people knew that like grief of stones and further books were coming for this and it wasn't just like and here's the end i think that yeah. that helped to return to your point about the nest of vipers uh in the notes michael you you mentioned that you find you you had a bit of a bone to pick with the way that the nest of vipers plot is sort of like introduced and then just and i actually i i 100 agree with you but i like that the resolution to this whole thing is that kelahar essentially just says finally loses patience and says the wrong thing and venezar is just like all right fuck it and fuck you you don't have a place in the eulistalian how about that and kelahar is like that's fine I do my thing. It feels very unsatisfying, but also very like authentic that the resolution to this whole messy political thing for someone who is so philosophically and what's the word I want? Like by his very character, ill-equipped to handle politicking. It makes sense that that is the resolution that he essentially like a cartoon character is thrown at this wall hits it, slides down it slowly with a loud, squeaky, rubbery sound, and then just plops onto the floor and limps off to go find another way to function. Like, that holds very authentic to me. Yeah. Whether or not it is satisfying narrative to have in the book, I don't know. But I do feel like it's it's authentic, and I do feel like it builds a good picture of the world it's it's a part of the world building and whether or not but like i said i i don't know that it's necessarily good novel crafting yes but it's interesting world building. yes this is exactly where where i was frustrated with it was it is extremely narratively unsatisfying but yes you're right it is authentic and that is something that is i think true over pretty much the entire that addison appears to uh, you know, prioritize realism over something that's, you know, narratively uh, tidy. like tidy. Yeah, that would be it. 
tidy. Yeah, yeah. She's definitely not afraid of messiness. Yeah. Yeah. Tidy or streamlined, <laughs> too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, definitely, definitely an author who will tell you about the, you know, gun on the mantelpiece. And then it won't go off, but the but some people will look at it very meaningfully instead. Oh, see, I disagree. She'll tell you about the gun on the mantelpiece. And then it turns out that someone will be a gun enthusiast. And there'll be a long chapter about the gun enthusiast clubs that one of them goes to. Mm, yeah, that, That's that would work too. Yep. And there will be some sort of clue that, you know, you will find from the gun enthusiast about, you know, the where the gun had, you know, an ivory handle or something. Yeah. And it turns out that one of the one of the suspects is an, is uh, is into scrimshaw. <laughs> but but that gun, but that gun will never go off. Right. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's yeah. not relevant. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm just picturing the possibility that Kelhar somehow holds a gun with an ivory handle and realizes that it's actually, uh, you know, bone. And, you know, suddenly we've got, uh, you know, Kelhar and the sentient weapon. Um, not exactly, but <laughs> that's the tangent my brain would go off on. So there's an interesting note in. Oh, that's a spoiler. Never mind. <laughs> Do, 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 do. Okay. Mal, yep. sure, we'll sure. talk about yep. it next week. I still have to read Grief of Stones. I have not read that yeah. yet. So yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, we could we could force these two to have a headphones moment, but you know, no, nah, we'll we'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, one one maybe advantage of the scattershot plot methodology is that it does uh, allow for what's the way to put it? There there's something there's an, there's a good chance that even if you don't like everything, you're going to like something, um, mm-hmm. which I I. I will admit was sort of my feeling coming out of it, which was that a lot of the like murder solving plots, plot point, I was pretty iffy on. I really, really like a lot of, uh, Kalahar's, um, conversations with various people, but like, I don't particularly care who's killed these people. However, once it switched over to hunting the ghoul and then also the, the trial of ordeal, that, that is my jam. I was super into all of that. And so mm-hmm. I get a, by virtue of, of uh, her having the bravery to just be a little bit scatterbrained or not scatterbrained, but scattershot in her approach. I, she was able to just put these things in, which aren't themselves perfectly related to the main plot, but were still one of my favorite parts of the book, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. My two cents on that. I find the character of Kelahar so compelling that I don't care if he's attending a, a knitting circle. Mm. Like I find his insight and his, his point of view and his, his, experience of the world really really interesting to read especially since you know that in that knitting circle he's going to like describe all of the people at that circle in like such vivid evocative terms like like that you know when he goes into that tea shop and and describes like the two sisters who are sitting across the table from each other with a with the newspaper late flat and one Mm -hmm. of them's reading upside you know one of them's reading up right side up and the other's reading upside down or like the couple who are, you know, passing a single cup of tea back and forth as part of like an ancient courtship ritual. And mm-hmm. like all of those little, little details make the world feel so incredibly lived in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. R- real quick. Uh, when we get a chance, maybe it's not, maybe it's this time, maybe it's next uh, recording. If we want to talk about is uh, Thara Kelahar a, a, a noir protagonist, we can judge him against the rubric that uh, Raymond Chandler laid out. All right. In the simple oh, art let's do this. Let's do this, actually. Because I think that I think that actually before we get into Iana, I think there's okay. actually a pretty good thing to yeah. tackle. Okay. So in 
in The Simple Art of Murder, which was a collection of short stories, um, and there's also an essay in it from Raymond Chandler, he talks about how to write a what he called a, a, a mystery novel, although it's, you know, noir is the genre we often call. And it ends on a description of his protagonist. Um, and I'm just going to read some of this out here. Talking First, he talks about the city, and then it comes into... Uh, about yeah, and that, that's a noir thing. The yeah, city is a the character. The city is a character, for sure. And that's very true here. So, yep. But talking about his protagonist. But down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor. By instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it, he must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. I do not care much about his private life. He is neither a eunuch nor a satyr. I think he might seduce a duchess. I am quite sure he would not spoil a virgin. If he is a man of honor in one thing, he is in all things. He is a relatively poor man, or he would not be a detective at all. He is a common man, or he would not go among common people. He has a sense of character or he would not do his job. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without due dis- and without a due and dispassionate even. Uh, he is a lovely man and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or you'll be sorry you ever saw him. He talks of, as a man of his age talks, that is with a rude wit, a lively sense of the grotesque, a disgust for sham and a contempt for the story uh, is this man's fitness. I think I might have missed a slight part in there. I might have a strange version, but that gives you kind of some breakout idea of what Raymond yeah. Chandler thought his protagonist yeah. would be. And I personally think that, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I am, I am a put in my place. Cause that, that maps to Kelahar pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. tidily. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the journalistic style, the, the thing where he walks everywhere yeah. is also super noir. Mm-hmm. Hey, that, hold on. He takes the trolley take sometimes. The trolley. Yeah. Yeah. But like <laughs> that, that he's like walking some, he's walking places. He's taking the trolley. He's like, you know, he's yeah. not taking a cab like he's he's out there amongst the people. Yeah. And he's very comfortable yeah. with people of all, especially the, the more common class. Um, he's, he's ready to talk to everybody. He has no, does not stick his nose up at anyone. And especially his sense of honor and like doing his job, his calling that he yeah. uh, and doing it right and well, because that is what people should deserve, you know, is to, to have their yeah. story told in death and everything. Like, that's great. That's the 100 percent a noir protagonist. Well, yeah, no, nailed it. And beyond the protagonist aspects too, you know, in in terms of the narrative, I mean, I guess it's a protagonist thing in part, but um, it was one of the things listed there before mm-hmm. that being, you know, being low resource is mm-hmm. one of the things that de- delineates cop shows from noir, you know, yeah. Yeah, cop yeah, yeah. books from noir books or spy books from noir mm-hmm. books. Like even gets, when even when the actual thing is being investigated overlap. Um, yeah. But the noir detective is always low resource that he doesn't, you know, he and doesn't have expenses, you know, expense budget, anything like he's out there. What he's got is what he's got. And yeah. that's only a couple of pennies in his pocket. Yeah, he'll have he has his own wits and his own whatever resources he has to have and maybe a couple of friends. But he doesn't have like the entire police force backing him. Yeah, this way. isn't this isn't a Sherlock Holmes who's a gentleman detective. Yeah, um, you know the the noir PI is you know is the Michael Michael Scott will get this one, but he's the Vimes you mm-hmm. know in the in the like OG police station, yeah. right? Yeah. It just, it's interesting that you mentioned Sherlock Holmes. The author um, actually has written a Sherlock Holmes send up. Okay. Uh, it is referred to, it's called, um, where is it? It's called The Angel of the Crows. 
the review it is just described as Sherlock fan fiction with wings and a more likable main character. Uh, it is set in an alternate 19th century London with supernatural creatures such as angels. Well, cool. okay. So I, I know what we're reading next. <laughs> well, presumably we'll do Grief of Stones first. Yeah. Um, it's been sitting on my to, my, my to be read pile for a while. Same. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Sherlock Holmes because that's, she has, she's done that. So it might yeah. be interesting to read how she yeah, yeah. does that as well. Yeah, because it's, it's an entirely different subgenre of mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the gentleman, the ge- gentleman detective, because like Poirot, Poirot is also in that class, and there's some others. I fucking love Poirot, man. <laughs> uh, okay, so Pelthenior, our good good boy, our our good good bad boy. Because <laughs> our good good boy. flamboyant boy, yeah, he's a flamboyant boy. He's not a bad boy. <laughs> He's a soft he's little, a little cinnamon bit. bowl. Cinnamon roll. <laughs> he's he's not. Oh, I guess is that the second? Oh, he's a he's a snarky boy. But yeah. He, well, he's yeah. A snarky boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's more. Yeah. 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 You can look forward to more Pelthenior in the next book. Great. Fantastic. As, as somebody so. who's not into theater, I read him as somebody who's definitely into theater. Um, oh, both yeah. both a because the opera is kind of theater yeah. and B because that is a hundred percent where, you know, half of his character traits are lifted. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 As a, as a former theater kid, I, I know a couple of Belthorne, There's always one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love everything about Pelthenior. Just everything. I love that. One of the first scenes we get of Kelahar is him drinking tea and daydreaming about a sweet tooth lover. And <laughs> the first time he meets Pelthenior, they get tea and Pelthenior heaps honey into his tea, just the way that Kelahar had imagined. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then, and then there's the moment where Pelthenior uh, takes him to dinner at his mother's oh, tea house. Hold on, hold on, <laughs> slow your roll. We're gonna get there. Okay, okay, okay. We're gonna get there. Yeah, th- this is this is just Anna trying to skip directly to the now kiss. Yeah, yeah. We yes. need the slow burn. <laughs> Pelthenior, the director of the Vermilion Opera, is such a dope character as a yeah. character on his own, a character who is by weight of his talent is a boundary breaker sure yeah and he and he was there fully intending to you know make a make a career for himself as a principal singer until his voice changed and it wasn't as nice anymore mm-hmm. yeah as somebody who's half goblin mm-hmm. yeah so he decides instead he will simply write the operas and then put goblins in them mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, which is terrific. Um, and I like that he gets away with this. Uh, one of the things I enjoy about the this is that Kelahar knows absolutely fuck all about opera. So part of <laughs> this book is him discovering like exactly how like special mm. Pelthenior is yeah, yeah. as a yeah. writer composer and for his willingness to put Othoro in a lead role in Jelsu. Uh to be is, to be noted that is the that is the all goblin um uh, the, the fully goblin singer. Uh mm. yeah, yeah. Athoro is the uh yeah the goblin woman who is the lead of Jelsu, which is the 
opera about manufacturing workers uh, that causes a literal riot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at the end of uh, at the end of the book, um, which Pelthenior is tickled about. Yeah. It's that's technically a spoiler for the the next book, but like in the first in the first meeting of Pelthenior and Kelahar in uh, Grief of Stones, uh, Pelthenior comments something to the effect of. Kelahar says like, but they, you know, but they rioted and he's like, but they, but they, they felt something. Yeah. Yeah. I would much rather they riot than they, than they, they don't have any strong feelings about it whatsoever. Yeah. Truly it's, an artist. It's, it's, it's a very mischievous remark. It's yeah. very good. It's, it was very, it's very much a moment of like, but they rioted. Yeah. It's great fucking press. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get that gets into the newspapers. I also love. And I went back and looked. I'm not saying this out of like ship it ness. <laughs> okay. I went back and looked. Kalahar comments on Pelthenior's outfits and how good he looks <laughs> every single time they meet. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yep. always say how good they look, but he always comments on how Pelthenior looks. We rarely get a description of how anyone else dresses at least to that degree Mm -hmm. i mean every now and then we'll get a comment yeah but it's only when there's something exceptional happening yeah this person dresses very specifically to overwhelm people or this person's not wearing their coat or something like that with Pelthenior, every outfit details how it sets off his eyes like (laughs) yeah it's pretty clear sorry (laughs) you got it bad Clearly, and and this is where this is where I think it's also important that we've got first person here versus yeah. third person, yeah. um, because yeah. like we're there in Kelahar's head, being like, "Oh, buddy, <laughs> yeah." Oh, see, um, this is where I just feel like I was clueless the whole reading. Like I could kind of see that there was a bit of chemistry, but I wasn't sure if it was going anywhere. But now that you're saying this, I'm going. <laughs> how did I miss all this? Um, oh, but man. but we all we all know that this is just. Um, you know, me being the completely oblivious straight dude. So there, there's definitely I'm vaguely flattered that that's not that that I'm not included in that anymore. <laughs> yes, yes, we have we have discovered we have discovered a a straighter dude than you, Jude. Uh, <laughs> like the the uh, because because you know you've got you've got the lizard men. Yeah, there we go. That's true. The, that being said, it is there is a uh, a muscle to be built over time for like building the shipping goggles of like figuring yeah. out when you like oh yeah these characters are gonna go you get you get to get better at it over time it is a thing you can learn <laughs> yeah it's it's True. also a thing that like you know you you adapt it's it's a thing that like also it's a different skill for books versus TV shows oh, sure. and movies mm, yeah mm-hmm. that the and the vibes the vibes can also vary according to genre sure sure yeah. but yes yes. Much, much now kiss smush characters together energy <laughs> yes. here. And now now we can talk about the the, the scene. Uh, the scene we are referring to is both my favorite and least favorite scene in this book. Uh, it's my one of my favorite scenes because it is so charming. But it's one of my least favorite scenes simply because it's so sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They go to Pelthenior's mother's tea house and... Pelthenior kind of hits on him. Yeah. I mean, not like straight up, but there is some, there are flirts happening. Oh, yeah. Like Pelthenior also straight up is like bringing him home to mom. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Elfenior's mom straight up says, I like this one. Don't scare him off. Yeah. Uh, and there's like, and Kelhar knows it. Like, he almost says, are you courting me? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're not imagining it. Yeah. Like, yeah. He says it. And then the sad part happens, which is he goes home and, and spends the attack. entire night. In, yes. In like an eight hour panic attack over this fact. Buddy. Yeah. You just gotta, you need a hug. Like, I'm not even asking for kisses at this point. Like, I know when you're asking for too much, just get a hug. Like, just go, my, just my like, therapy. <laughs> I mean, I go mean, to Anora well, yes. and have Anora hug you, please. Ther- please. Therapy yes. is Anora- exactly what Kelahar needs. But I mean, yeah. let's just, let's just frame this for a moment. Kelahar has a ton of trauma because. Being gay in the Elflands is not okay, unfortunately. It's or complicated for yeah. sure at, at a minimum. It's a, it also yeah. Uh, that's an that's one of the one of the things I definitely think, and maybe we can talk about it here. It certainly is. I don't now. Correct me if you guys got a different impression, but I don't get the impression that it is specifically religiously prescribed. But I yeah. do get the impression that it is socially frowned upon or at least is scandalous yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's definitely the impression uh, I, I get as well i was, yeah. I was yeah. in fact like i was in fact just about to say socially frowned upon so yeah yeah i i, I do sense maybe in some places it may or it may have a, at one time or within some sects it may be prescribed because that's one thing that and we can talk about this when we get to the religion part that i think is not apparent in Goblin Emperor that is absolutely visible here in Amalo is there is not a religion mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Amalo. Yeah. There's 64 goddamn million of them. And yet they're all sort of the same. They're all the same gods, but they're different ways of worshiping them, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Kelahar spends a significant amount of concern over what is the appropriate way to bury Minshelson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one of the first things that's one that's the first thing that he's like hired to do basically is figure out how you know, who she is and how to bury her. Yeah. Well, and that ties in also to their their funerary practices have to be that way because otherwise the person might rise up as a ghoul. Yeah. It's a really yeah. I have some very serious questions about how this ghoul bullshit works. This is one place where I am going to call Catherine Addison out. I have some very serious like metaphysical questions about how the fuck it is that you can have the dead rise in some places and not others based on like I'm thinking latitude? I'm thinking magical soil bacterium actually <laughs> like like I'm not I'm not kidding like sure. I'm not I'm not kidding here because like the the you know the ground that a ghoul has touched is more likely to generate more ghouls etc well, I was I was reading it a little bit. Um, is there something left over? Um, you know, so to pick up from a certain TV series, uh, you know, does something of the host survive? And that's got to be yes, mm. because we know <laughs> that the name of the corpse that from which the ghoul originated can be used to return it to rest. Quiet the dead. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. there's there's something important there. Um, 
so it seems like it's very much magical, but just like soil bacterium, I'm not sure. But I think I think it's yeah, one of those questions that should not be answered. It's more yeah. interesting no, if we don't not. know it. Yeah, but it's 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 a it's a bizarre bit of world building that this phenomenon happens only in some places and not others. Yeah, and that, that's why I was thinking magical soil bacterium, or you could have a difference in um in you know temp like, and it could be related to difference in temperatures and stuff like that too. Sure. Um, the other the other thing that I thought of that might be an explanation would be if um, if people who have magical abilities are more likely to rise as ghouls, um, and if some areas have more people with magical mm. abilities than others, perhaps you know mm. if that's a genetic trait. Yeah, that maybe yeah, maybe the-, the Northlands breeds more mazas and stuff. Since it seems like you know, for one thing. It seems like perhaps not everybody who has supernatural abilities is identified as such, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're if you're a witness for the dead, you have to t- touch a corpse, a recent corpse, to find out. Sure. That that being said, I'm 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 definitely on the on team. Don't explain it. Um, and if you, yeah, if it does sure. get explained, it should be something fucking. It should be even weirder. Like it should be a que- an answer that that raises more questions. Like, oh, it turns out that you have to be within a sight of a of a northern star of a particular northern star. If you get too far south, it's below the horizon, and that won't cause ghouls anymore. And you're like, wait, what? What's this fucking star that does this? You know, it should be <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I do love the ghoul, like the rules behind it. Uh, yeah, and graves and like finding them and using the name. I I, I, I also love that ha- like most of the way through the book, the, they first talk about name magic and then they just use it to solve the a mystery. And I'm like, what the fuck is this stuff? Where did this come from? I love it. It's great. <laughs> but also like I love that that uh, you, the author's willing to just pull that out and be like, OK, yeah, my weird my world is stranger than you think it is. It's not you do not understand yeah. it yet. Hmm. Yeah. Tolkien had this idea, not this idea, but Tolkien was very, very good at in, at culturing this verisimilitude in his world building where everything felt like there was an extra inch beyond the edges of the map Mm. and there was one more thing hinted at whenever he mentioned something um and a lot of modern fantasy authors go a little too far with that Mm -hmm. in the sense that they they give you six inches more of the map than you be you know over the edges and they give you they mention this person and then they give you an encyclopedia entry they wiki it. sure tolkien's skill was in making you feel the depth of the world as going through it it's because the world was there you didn't need for the purposes of the story he you didn't need to have that jammed into your face you just needed to feel it as you were moving through it and I think that is something that, in a very different way, Addison does well, which is this absolutely feels like a lived-in world that you're experiencing. And there definitely feels like a depth to it that you're not seeing, mm. which I like, which I think is part of why it, I personally find it very compelling. Yeah. I don't understand the gods and the cults. Yeah. I don't understand the magic, but it feels like their sense there it feels can it feels like it works in a in in a way that makes sense to the people in that world it just doesn't make sense to me yeah because i'm not in it and i don't see it all and also i think dovetails nicely with the protagonists that we have because 
in Goblin Emperor itself, Maya doesn't fucking know anything, right? Like, yeah. like Maya knows on. That's about <laughs> it. Yeah, Maya knows manners, and that's that's where Maya starts. Yes. Um, so he knows none of He's got any law of the magic well. stuff. Law, yeah, because yeah. Setheris. But yeah, like that that he's, you know, yeah, you're right. Like he's got he's got manners, he's got some legal knowledge, etc. But like, you know, Nothing we aren't getting an explanation of how magic works because Maya doesn't know. And I think that that and we 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 observe the world through the lens of what Maya sees and thinks about. And the same thing with Thara, you know, that we basically get like the snippets of the world as he thinks about them. So you might get you know, a piece of world building as he's like reminding himself of the context behind something that he is seeing, but he isn't like sitting there monologuing about the ancient history of the Ithuvaros, right? Because that's a, a, not like what pops into his head. Yeah. A great example is at one point he uh, mentions that he mentions the cult that he was raised in only says the prize once. Mm. Yeah. And he never mentions it again. You don't, he, he doesn't talk about what this name came from, where it came from, more details about how this cult worships. It's just, he mentions because he's going to pray at his altar that he's praying the way he was taught by his grandmother mm -hmm. in this way yeah. this cult is. So you, and it's part of the world building that you get all this detail as he runs across it. Um, it's just great. Um, God, how did we end up on like, Religious cults from Pelthenior. I don't even remember. <laughs> with with you know, with basically uh, what oh, we what we get with the world building. Yeah, that yeah. that does say something about the world building, though. Is everything is connected? It might feel like we've got all these vignettes going, but they do have all these little threads pulling out to something or other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't have more to say. Pelthenior is just great. Yeah. Um, he's just great. And you're going to see so much more of him in the next book. It's fantastic. Um, look forward to that. World building. Let's let's start with T. Mm. Oh yeah. So this is this, this is fascinating because you you said when we were recording last time that the author views Maya asking for chamomile as a mistake. TM. Sure. And as meanwhile, a after reading through this and going back to Goblin Emperor, I was like, oh, it was a choice to have Maya <laughs> drink chamomile, the peasant tea, as opposed to Severin or Orkor or any of the others that are like the fancy noble teas. Yeah. Um, and I do think that it probably is like a good way to explain that. Is yeah. That chamomile is, is some sort of like different tea. But yes. Um, if if you in case you don't have the notes in front of you, I will review them. The author in a QA said that Severin is a sort of Darjeeling. Orkor is based on my one experiment with English breakfast tea. Colveris is even stronger than that, so basically coffee. Mm -hmm. Iconaro is a combination of yogi teas, lemon ginger, and green tea bags, which is something I did quite often before I moved to more loose leaf teas. Okranasai, which shows up in the Tomb of Dragons, which is book three is sort of Lopsang Sushong. I'm sure I mispronounced that. I don't do Chinese teas, so uh, oddly enough, I don't seem to have an oolong equivalent when oolong is possibly my favorite tea. I think that's awesome that is 
at that two of those T's are things are like wackadoo things that are not real. She's not just like one for wanting them. Mm. Mm-hmm. One of them is like tea so intense it's coffee, which sounds great. The other one is like two bags of tea muddled together. I'm imagining that you could do something with Colveris that'd be like a very Thai tea sort of vibe where you just make like incredibly strong and then add like sweetened condensed milk. Yeah. I'm just imagining when you, when I was in college and uh, I would make a giant pot of black tea, but I didn't know fucking anything about making tea. So I would just leave like a half a dozen black tea bags in the pot and then just walk away and get distracted. And it would just sit there for a half an hour steeping into bitterness. <laughs> I feel like I was on, the, I was on the right track there. Yeah, probably. I mean, I would probably drink that. So, I mean, I did quite a bit uh, and I probably would still now more nostalgia, but I love, you had a great note here, Michael, uh, in, in the, the notes doc we have about the tea house culture. That really, I think, is fantastic. The way that what it says about the social culture that tea houses seem to be a very much a a part of people's daily lives. Mm. Yeah, like Kelahar has the his tea house, the one he goes to on a regular basis, and he has the the food carts that he goes to for lunch on a regular basis. And Honora has his favorite tea house, which is different than Kelahar's. And it does very much paint this picture of people that don't cook mm. for mm-hmm. the most part. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I'm going to veer off into theory land here. Um, the author is a person I suspect who does a great deal of research. Yep. Um, hundred percent. I don't know what she's writing right now, but I suspect it, it, it is if not directly about, then is heavily inspired by the Civil War based on the enormous number of books about the Civil War she's been writing reviews on, (laughs) on her Patreon. (laughs) Um, But it gives me an insight into the idea that she does read, you know, a lot of this. So I suspect that this is a looking at the Industrial Revolution and the way that people stopped cooking their own food Mm -hmm. and started going to public houses and stuff like that, that this is sort of an analog to that. But it was such an interesting observation because I didn't even pick up on that. I I was going at it from a completely different direction. I wouldn't have tied in the Industrial Revolution at all. I would have gone, it is actually weird that we today have this expectation that most people just live at home, do a home-cooked meal, eat that, and then are done the outlier in history as far as i know which is not very well i'm not great at history uh but this is one of those like weird facts that you pick up that sort of just everybody having their their own kitchen their own fully equipped kitchen and making their own food is actually a bit weird it's inefficient as hell it is and that there was so much of history where uh it would be you go down to the local pub and you pick up a bowl of stew and that's, you know, your meal. Yeah. Especially in more urban areas, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the, the we, we also are very strange in our current um, household structure of having very small households where, like, me and my wife live together in an attached house with no one else. And that is 
like unheard of in in the greater thing of history. So yeah, the, the number of people who were cooking for themselves is is very different over over periods of time. Um, yeah, and that, and that like single people living in apartments certainly it it'd be wildly inefficient for Thara to cook himself meals. Where would he store any of it? Mm-hmm. Like it well, makes yeah, sense for him to go and get apartment. yeah yeah. And, yeah, what makes far more sense, like, he could live in a boarding house like Minchelson did, where, you know, the boarding house would have meals, mm-hmm. um, and that would be part of your rent, or he or he can do what he appears to do, which is he goes out and gets buns and stuff like that to eat. And I, it's a great bit of world building, and it's so good that it, it didn't even hit me until you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. And then I sat there for like a solid two minutes, just like galaxy brained like because it was one of those things like i absolutely had understood that this was he didn't cook his own food and that this was a part of his world was that everybody had their thing like nothing you said was something i hadn't read or grasped but it just i hadn't connected the way what it was saying about the social Mm -hmm. organization the observation that you made um which is a testament to the way that i kind of read often i just like absorb things and i don't always critically uh like reflect on on them uh which is one of the reasons i love doing uh po- projects like this because i do uh, I, you know i am forced to uh actually examine the the works i'm i'm taking in and it's been really rewarding um so yeah i i love working. the tea houses it's such a cool detail and it really does bring so much flavor uh, if you'll forgive a little bit of, uh, <laughs> not a, you know, not a pun, but you know what I yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, to, to, to the narrative, because they are so different and you see so many different kinds of people when he goes to the various, uh, the various tea houses. Uh, it's great. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. It's interesting because I wonder if this is, I, I'd love to, 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 to ask, uh, Addison about if this is an Amalo thing or if it's something wider to the empire, because the prevalence Ooh. of tea houses to me evokes of, um, England in like, especially London in the late 17th, uh, 1700s or early, early. And yeah, just in that basically from 1700 onward where the tea trade was so huge, which really draws in the idea of like a, a city that is, um, big on trade and is pulling things in from elsewhere in the, in the region and is uh, sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a, a metropolitan, uh, cosmopolitan. That's the word I'm looking a cosmopolitan city that is, uh, mm. uh, in touch with a, with a wider area around it, which kind of gives it a sort of frontier feel as well. I'd be really interested to find out if this was something specific to Amalo or not. Well, it's, it's got well, to be at least a little bit specific to Amalo because we know from Goblin Emperor that Amalo is where the airships originate. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so if, it makes sense so if they're building air- all the airships there, they're probably transporting some stuff around, or at very least people with it. So Ooh, what? it's entirely possible that like Amalo is the only place where you can get all of these different teas. That if you go to various other parts of the empire, there'll be one tea that the whole city drinks because that's what's made local. That's what's grown local. Yeah. And so, but this is a, an airship hub. And so the trade is much greater. And so this is why everybody has op- options to a bunch of different uh, kinds of tea. That's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. I... I will admit that I have aspirations once we've gotten uh, after after the uh, Tomb of Dragons comes out of getting Catherine Addison on to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Although I do have to figure out a way to invite authors on 
while caveating, yes, it's called Our Trash Runneth Over, but we're the trash, <laughs> not your books. We're the trash. It's, honestly, I think I think phrasing it about like that is would would probably work, honestly. Oh yeah, no, I, I hope so. I just I think I need to put that right at the front so that they'll actually listen. The trash is what's coming out of our mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. any author who doesn't look at the title and, and fall in love with it a little bit uh, isn't worthy of the podcast. So. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Especially yeah. with the yeah, art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been sort of driving it. What's where we go from after tea? What's our where's our next world building destination? I want to talk about the absolutely batshit role of religion is in this yes. world. Let's go yeah. for because it. Because we've got a billion fucking religions that are all the same, what, six, eight gods? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know the Barjan, they follow the same gods, etc. It's just everybody worships worships them in different ways, which is fascinating. That various religious institutions are like the bedrock of society because you have all of the like undertaking type of types of services taken care of by the by the prelates of Ulysses, as well mm-hmm. as hospice care it seemed, you know, to, to some mm-hmm. degree and stuff like that um and then you, you have last rights the at least of the dead actually like being a although maybe not a crucial part but a very a sometimes very decisive part of a bunch of law making not law law and yep. law enforcing is also not the right word but like interpretation of like fact finding yeah uh, but yet they're not cops. Right. But also the cops are also a religious order. Right. The Vigilant Brotherhood is the Bill- Vigilant Brotherhood of Enmura. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. when, you know, when um, when the mysteries of Enmura were proscribed from the followers of Ulyss, they made their own Vigilant Brotherhood. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I have a couple of notes that I didn't include in the doc uh, from Catherine Addison about the pantheons and about the religion stuff. Um. So one thing she says is that the elves pantheon is essentially infinite. They have five principal deities of the state religion, Anmira, Osiron, Ksaivo, Ulysses, and Kisteo, although all of them have other aspects as well that everyone worships, but you can also worship as many other gods as seem needful to you. So they're all gods of all sorts of things, Orshan being one of the most popular. Um, and then she also mentions in another comment uh, do, 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 where is it? Um, there's another comment she makes somewhere that, uh, oh, here we go. Um, elven religion is pantheistic. There are five major gods, the fivefold harmony, secondary gods like Orshan, Orshan and Selejo, dozens of little gods, a handful of forgotten gods, and at least one prescribed god. Like in ancient Rome, as long as you acknowledge the principal five and you aren't hurting anybody, you can worship whoever you want. Yeah. But you don't get government funding. The last, she goes on a bit, a bit, a little bit about how Eulis gets worshipped and then says, many Berger say gods are analogs to elf gods or chicken egg question, vice versa, but they aren't the same gods like Roman Minerva and Greek Athena aren't quite the same goddess, only more so. This can be awkward. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, which is really interesting. But it's It's all fascinating. And it's fascinating that like, the various religions are such a bedrock of society. They're providing all sorts of services. You know, the clerics of Saibo are the ones being the doctors. <laughs> and um, yeah. they're, they're the people who are medically trained, et cetera. Like, that's a religious calling to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And it, it replaces things that would otherwise be codes of ethics. 
it seems like your your cops aren't doing it because they just want to uphold the law no they're doing it because they're priests and this is their calling is to you know help keep order and you know justice and Ex- except yeah, that like, except that this book also says a cab well yes but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know like but but those can exist together just as yeah. just as you know mm-hmm. we see you know the uh uh the amalathalian uh am i doing the words right the um probably yeah, the religious the religious Amalfalian? institutions of amalo amalathalian yeah. or the amala mary Amal- yeah mary is that it yeah. Yes, yeah, the Amala Mary. The Amala is... would be City Hall. Okay, now that Michael's brain has confused all the words, yes. So the Amala would be the local religious institutions. And then, where was I going f- before? Her? No, the, 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 the Amala is the uh, is the religious one. The uh, the uh, Amala Mary is the is is the palace. Ugh. Because you get the you, you get because yeah. you get the the Eulistalian, yeah, not yeah, the Eulis. yeah. Right. Although you do kind of get both. I don't fucking know. <laughs> I, I have to, I have to have them in front of me, or have been literally listening to it all like within the last hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, <laughs> yeah, to keep I'm totally all lost. of that straight. You guys are way ahead of me. I okay. have no idea. <laughs> so we get back to the the religious institutions of Amalo. Like they they do run stuff, but they're mm-hmm. but it's also like. So you get you get the mix. There is the nest of vipers, but then they also are genuinely religious, maybe about mm-hmm. what they're doing. They they also you know carry out some of the vital tasks of society, and it's just it's they're following a calling. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's just it's mm-hmm. a religious calling instead of just well, I decided to be a cop. Yeah, I think the idea is interesting. The comment in this answer that elven religion is pantheistic is important and i think it it feeds into a lot of this is that when you have gods that map to major functions of how a society works and you have a state religion it, that lines up really tidily because then the necessary functions of a society are lined up underneath these state gods so if you are interested in medicine from a social st- that becomes synonymous with having a calling to Saiba. Yeah. Or if you are, you know, have, if you feel drawn to, you know, working with the dead, that's not being morbid. That's being having a calling to Euless. And it seems to be that that's kind of the way this society is set up a little bit. Yeah. Is that these various social functions are organized in the fucking loosest sense of the word, it sometimes <laughs> seems like, under the auspices of the religions mm. rather than the government. Like we've got we've got we've got like Prince Prince Orchness who's overseeing the, you know, city planning and trade negotiations and, you know, all of those all of those sorts of things. But then like the public services are in many ways, being handled by the clerics. Yeah, which I, and I think makes sense why Prince Orchinus went kind of around the church to bring in a witness. Yeah. Because he's trying to run a fucking city, and in Amalo, the 
the the priests of Eulus are a fucking hot mess and he's having trouble getting things done that he wants to get done. So yeah. He, and runs around them to get what he wants. Um, because he, he can't, he can't have anybody. There's game. nobody to, to like. Everybody's bemoaning that that ghoul took like that the ghoul was dealt with so late. Well, there wasn't anybody to fucking deal with it, right? Yeah. Like there wasn't there wasn't anybody in Amalo like four months ago or whatever mm. to deal with it when yeah. it first rose. There was nobody with you know nobody with Thara's skills, which is wild to me that this is a thing that can happen, and witnesses are not treated with more respect yeah come on well, i mean they're they're at a really weird place they're at yeah. they're at this weird place where we're clearly you know either at the start of or on the cusp of some sort of industrial revolution because yeah. we got things in, got, in you, the midst of it or too midst of it. Yeah. yeah we're yeah. we're we're somewhere we're somewhere around an industrial revolution it's happening yeah. and we've got you know all of the like set pieces like you know, horrible working conditions and in, you know, factories and, and airships. Yeah. We got airships. <laughs> we've got, you know, manufacturing fires yeah. because the, you know, the, the one that, the one that Thara describes of like, you know, there's a manufacturing fire and nobody got out. That's, you know, triangle shirtwaist right there. Yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I have the doc open right in front of me, I will read you this other Q and a, are we going to see the beginnings of some strong labor movements like the elven world equivalent of what led slash leads to the eight hour workdays and or living wages answer? I'm trying to get them up to child labor laws. Yes. <laughs> so this you're, you're absolutely right. Yes. There's definitely is. This is an intentional thing that she is staging mm-hmm. this world on the, on, on the precipice of, labor movement and it says something very specific about religion as a result which is that Mm -hmm. the industrial revolution is predicated on having things like engines where that that having a an engine that can propel something is actually got a significant amount of science behind it and now this is something that's common enough that everybody knows you know oh yeah airships are a thing now um, which says that there's enough science out there in society that people are going to start thinking in terms of that. They're going to say, ah, well, okay, so the airship can float. Why can the airship float? Well, the airship can float because it's filled with that really flammable gas. And I saw the bar. That one I remember. And, you know. Because it blows up. But then that means people will know a little bit about how things work. And once you have that sort of thing, you don't have to make, you don't have to make shit up. You don't have to say, ah, yes, they have travel. They have trapped the anti-gravity goblin inside that big balloon. It's like, that's one of the interesting things about the religion in this book is it seems much more practical. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it seems, and also there are like, there's actual magic in the world that seems to be at least correlated to the religion, if not directly the result of it and and yet at the same time we have people like moving away from the supernatural yeah and you know we have all these people in amalo who are like who are like wait witnesses where the dead can actually like talk to the dead i thought that that was a myth yeah like ghouls are a thing i didn't know that ghouls are an actual thing or the Um, hill of werewolves where people are like is it really haunted are ghosts a real thing and thar standing there with twigs in his hair like Yes, it's real. <laughs> Fuck you. 
<laughs> I have to say, I liked the that whole uh, the the um, yeah the ordeal. Like the the trial of ordeal is such an old concept. Uh, to have it mm-hmm. still in use during a sort of more industrial age is very interesting. Yeah, um, and I liked that was one of one of my more favorite parts of the book too. Watching him. Uh, like very consciously describe the first part of it and then skip 12 hours later when he's apparently had a whole fucking night and he's done. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm kind of picturing the bit in Ghostbusters where somebody gets slimed. Okay. Not the blowjob. No. <laughs> the ghost blowjob. No, no, Thanks, that, God. That's like, that's, that's... Damn, Aykroyd. <laughs> fucking. No, that, no that's, but I know exactly that's what you that's, mean. You know, that's going to be in book three with Thara, yeah, yeah, with yeah. Uh, Iana, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I'm imagining, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. He, I'm imagining Thara, like what his shirt half untucked mud on his knees, twigs in his, in his unraveling prelates braid. And this Uh, isn't the (laughs) blowjob. No, no, that would be. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Honey. Hey honey, you want to go to the hill of werewolves with me? You, you want to see? You want to see some ghosts? <laughs> I'll make you see ghosts. Um, you might have been Scott, at this too long. Scott, I'll know. <laughs> who am I going to call? Can you imagine some some teenagers who don't believe that the hill of werewolves is real, and they go up to the hill of werewolves to to fool around, and they're like, <laughs> the sun sets, and they're they're just about to get busy when some murdered soldier walks through them. Oh, that's that's that's, that's a boner killer if I ever mm. met one. <laughs> I mean, unless it's not, in which case, like, mm. you know, I don't want to kink shame, but like, mm. I think we can kink shame a massacre. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm comfortable kink shaming if your kink is ghosts of massacres. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we can. I mean, this this does <laughs> this me. does raise the question of whether uh, ghosts are at all sentient. I think this one is not. Yeah, that one yeah. very think, much appeared to be pre-recorded, as it were. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so in that case, in that case, it's not a person; it's just a phenomenon. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't it's say it's basically a snuff film at that point. I think we can agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's gross. It's gross. But I don't think that it would necessarily Checkmate. be wrong for somebody to have that. And now our and now uh, our trash has officially run. There over. we go. <laughs> it's like. Strictly oh, speaking, ugh, yeah, ugh, it's right there. But because mm. it's it's like at the board, it's like at the border of like, do you have a a kink for horror movies or do you have a kink for snuff films? Mm. Mm. All right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> now, anyway, now, I don't have a good segue no. from snuff right. Right film. now, now uh, that we've scarred everybody's ears, um, let's okay. We did talk about how everybody really liked that. I think that was generally a, a well-liked section. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. talk about favorites and least favorites. Uh, Anna? Uh, the the ghoul side trip is great. Um, and the, honestly, the, the airship, like, the airship aftermath is one of my favorites mm. for for some interesting reasons because it shows, like, like clearly Thar is having an awful time. Like that's very exhausting and traumatic for him. Um, but we have two separate characters who he does not know well at all, who go out of their way to comfort him. Mm. 
we have the we have the the woman who he was first there to see, mm-hmm. who is like Min Sean Hadron. Yeah, Sean Hadron, who's like, you are dead on your feet. I need to put like tea and a bun in you. Don't worry about the money. Like whatever. Like like I will pay. You need to eat right now. Um, and similarly with the with the witness for the airship, um, she also yeah. is like, no, like you know. You might not want to stand up for yourself, but I'm going to stand up for you because that's not right. How she's treating, how, you know, yeah. Venezar is treating you um, or um, Zanara and Hus- Zanara is treating you is not right. And, you know, if you won't stand up for yourself, then, like, I would like to stand up for you. But both of those as kind of new side characters who are immediately, like, nice to Thara and and not just not just passively nice to him but like give him something that he needs emotionally in like that specific moment um i really i really like those sections can i digression very very briefly sure it's all digressions <laughs> did you get a vibe off John Hodrin too or was that just me okay so yeah so actually if we want to take a brief break and talk about the the airship girls um because this is a fascinating uh concept what are they what are they called i'm i'm blanking on the i'm blanking on the name for them but they have a name for themselves like they're the airship girls and like they are like emancipated career women basically they're yeah like they're they're the rosie the riveter types you're you're exactly right like they're they're doing the building of these things and like i bet a, a lot of those corpses mm-hmm. were women too mm-hmm. that and you know their john Hedren's like yeah you know i'm like i'm thinking of just like going to tanvero and thara has this moment of being like wait like you know you're an unaccompanied single woman and she's like nah i'm an airship girl it's cool <laughs> don't worry yeah. about it like Whereas- it's this it's like this whole ho- totally like different subset of people who are like subset who are like it's expected that they are transgressing Mm -hmm. and like they're going off and doing things that are like not acceptable for single women to do it doesn't matter who their parentage is like they're off having careers yeah and like everybody else can get fucked and i love it yeah i wasn't sure how to read that but i definitely there was that i i could i definitely picked up that there was something going on with the airship girls i just wasn't well enough versed in industrial you know early industrial <laughs> literary themes to pick up what what addison was putting down right and I, I kept reading that more along the lines of um these women are poor these women are working in an airship factory they are they are mm. not the well-off proper ladies who are going to be you know marrying uh some rich guy and then that's their job is to you know make little rich guys actually mm. take things over or you know daughters to marry off somewhere um mm. this this is where they're getting their money to live because they probably don't have uh that much of a support structure aside from you know other airship girls or you know, and they have, and they have, have like this little community, and they like don't care what anybody else thinks. Yeah, it's great. But yeah. but it's also a necessity. It's not just an attitude. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, historically, the the social moral uh, uh, morals or what's morals in the word etiquette is do like all of the like things and expectations that are put on people are something that like the middle class and rich do. Once you get poor, it's like now nah, you're just you're just fighting survive. And so they're totally you're right on that one. They're totally in still in that mode. Yeah. So paying off of that, Scott, too, on the you know the etiquette is for the rich people, um, and the questions of like how you know how socially unacceptable is it to be gay mm. in this world to be marnus um and like it's very possible that that's a thing that the rich people are worried about because they have to care care about like you know um who is your heir <laughs> and you know yeah, having the legacy yeah that's a big and deal stuff like that um versus like it's very possible that the ordinary people are just like whatever like do your thing get your fly your freak flag man um yeah right about that, it yeah you know, and similarly similarly like i wonder whether the you know the barjan have different attitudes too uh, you know with a more like warlord-esque culture that that was that was in my notes i just have i just have to that exact question, I just have 100% Barajan is way friendlier to them because we have the example in Goblin Emperor that apparently Maya has a lesbian pirate aunt who yeah, is, uh, you know, married, who has a who wife. Is, uh, is, uh, what is it? They don't quite know what to make of her. Yeah. But that's as like, and I, th- I got the, the vibe that it was even, where's the book trilogy about her? <laughs> Yeah, yeah that there was even more going on. There may be some even, yeah, like that she's transgressing all over the place, and they're just like, I don't know, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do with that? Which, which <laughs> is more transgressive that she has a wife or that she's a pirate captain? <laughs> yeah. Also, she's but a pirate. What casual. are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I like that the book doesn't give us a tidy answer. Mm. Yeah, because frankly, there's. It's it would be unrealistic for there to be a tidy answer. And it's too easy. And I think that's one of the things that is a hallmark of these books is that this world is for better or for worse, one of the principal characters of these novels mm. is yeah. this terrific, rich world building. And it would be out of character for the book for the for the world building to have a simple everybody thinks queerness is fine or it's banned everywhere and nobody likes it because it's never that black and white there's always yeah. cultural regional mm. shades of gray whatever and particularly having said it in this weird transitional time culturally there's all kinds of shit being thrown up in the air there's cultural mores are being fucking kicked out the window all the time uh so it's interesting to me that we see so many different ways that it's being interpreted and handled i like that maya is like i have no idea what to make of this so i'm just going to be like i don't know and then we have his we have kelahar's sort of it's not even that he i don't want to call it internalized homophobia but it kind of is oh it absolutely is i i think yeah in the sense that he's, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't give him an out on that one. That's what it is. Yeah. And especially like, he is not wealthy, but he 
grew up with at least some connections to a noble family, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he grew up more in the noble sphere than the yeah. sphere, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his his father's side is connected to, is well enough connected to have married into the, the emperor's family. Yeah. So, but it seems like Alpha is not all that well connected. Which is, which is an interesting distinction. Other than to the fucking emperor, yeah. Like and he's like Amalfala, I'm best. Or the he's like the yeah the the arch prelate. He's like yeah I'm be- I'm buds with the arch prelate and with the emperor, but like nobody in this city likes me. <laughs> I have <Yeah>. no power. <laughs> it's such a bizarre. He's poor boy. He's in such a bizarre position. He has all this power and he's unwilling to touch it. And yeah. everybody is either gonna is either wants to just kick him or run away from him because of it, or so he thinks. Yeah, uh, it's because he's good. That though. Was your, did you have a? It's because he's good. He he goes yeah. and he yeah. looks at it and he says, "How? Why would somebody do anything but the thing that is, you know, right and proper?" And he might have, you know, attitudes on what exactly is right and proper, uh, but then like. He's he's looking at doing the right thing rather than worrying about oh who's supposed to be on top. It, oh yeah. yeah, no, he's very very mm. uh, principled. Principled, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. And and I think he's he's very aware that it would be an abuse of power for him to like you know send the emperor an email and be like, can you deal with this Zanarin lady? Right, like <laughs> <laughs> like he yeah. could do that, but it would absolutely be an abuse of power Mm. yeah and he's very aware of that so he isn't going to draw on those connections unless he absolutely has to also completely off topic but i absolutely love the tangent here that you could just you know interdimensional cable uh the elf lands except that email exists computers don't exist just email <laughs> that that I mean, would be a hilarious alternative. The magic universe. in this setting is so bananas incons like not inconsistent in that like in a bad way, but it's just the magic is so I don't have a better word for it that very low magic ish. <laughs> it follows a set of rules that obeys of conceptual rules that don't follow a specific like hardness or softness scale it follows like ideas so like names are important so you can use names to do things regardless of whether that's like hard magic or soft magic however however people describe Mm -hmm. it so if you want to track someone by their true name fucking D &D style do it if you want to put down a zombie with their name and a prayer do it if you're you know just gonna pray a lot yeah, that's that's fine too, um, but also you can kill someone, <laughs> right? the The magic is very like it's it's all over the place. You've got on the one hand, you've got you know Kelahar, where he's got one thing, which is he can cast Speak with Dead as a cantrip, and then right. you've got like uh, Maya's uh, he's no, no Hetere, who are just like power word yeah, kill, yeah. Yeah, who are loaded up with 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 kill spells and stuff, and then you got this one, you uh, you got this one Mazai who apparently knows find person, 
Uh, and we, we know that some people have little gifts like, uh, Maya mentions the one from the clock, from the, the uh, clockmakers guild who apparently can make fire. Seems like a dope gift. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's, um, it's, it's bizarre. You've got sort of this like scattershot system and it's like, yeah. it, it very much reads like someplace where there is magic, but just nobody knows the rules or most of the rules have been, uh, lost or, most of the rules haven't been discovered in the first place. Yeah, I, I, my is, read on it is that it's not that nobody knows the rules. It's that we don't know the yeah. rules. Yeah. Mm. It's that we are looking at it from the point of view of people who have lived in this world and don't find it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like if we, if we, had, a, if we had a POV character who was a Maza, I'm sure we would learn a lot more. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but like, Nara can only speak to how his magic works. So that he touches somebody on the forehead and he gets a vision of their death. Yeah, <laughs> or the uh, answer to a question. And Maya doesn't. Maya can't bear to look at his nohetchery in the eyes for ninety percent of the novel. So we're not going to get any real information there until one of them fucking nukes somebody. Like, right. That's one of the things that I think speaks to the verisimilitude of this novel that you do feel the the breadth of this world outside of the narrow aperture of each individual character's viewpoint yeah just enough bits and pieces that we can that we can start making guesses Mm. yeah which apparently i had a fascinating chat i interviewed a guy who had been a, a tolkien fan back in the 70s before anything else came out he was reading the novels as they came out mm. like one at a time he was reading so not not the novels as they came out but he read them one at a time before the silmarillion came out and was like building all these theories in his head because they came out in like the 50s um but he was building all these theories in his in, in his head as he was reading one then running back down to the to the corner store to buy the next one he got to the end and he like read the appendices and he's like that's it i have so many questions and thus the Tolkien fandom was born. <laughs> yeah. But he, he, he was saying like, it's there, there were so many corners that they, you know, when you started talking with other people and there were like all these little theories that they had, he's like, you would not believe the bananas fucking stuff that people thought before his papers came out. And like, I feel like that's where we're at with sure, this. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, and, and along, along that note with um, Tolkien too. And like, proto Tolkien fandom um that um i have a family friend who read through the lord of the rings as they were published and like remarked upon the cliffhanger between two towers and return of the king where you think frodo's fucking dead <laughs> that they all thought the frodo book they had to wait like months mm. for the next book to come out and they all thought that Frodo was dead. And everybody was like, everybody who was reading those books as they came out was like sitting there, like biting their fingernails. Well, and then on top of that, this, this author that I was interviewing had the exact same comment. And he goes, and then you finally get Return to the King and you open it up. And it's like, here's this dumbass Pippin and Mary fucking off with the orcs <laughs> and into in Rohan. And you have to read half the goddamn book. Before you get back to Frodo, it's not like the movies where that shit is blended. Mm. Yeah. You get all the Rohan horse shit, literally, <laughs> until you get back to Frodo. So you're just like p- turning pages trying to find what Frodo's up to. I thought that was very funny. 
Yeah. Mm. Uh, anyway, fa- favorite, any other favorite favorites parts in the books? Non-favorites My- for you? Uh, I'm good. What about Michael? Michael and Scott? How about you guys? Hmm. Uh, I think I think my least favorite part has already come up. Um, that would be the nest of vipers. It feels kind of unsatisfying. It feels like it's not quite connected to some of the other stuff. I mean, looking at it rationally, yes, I see how it's connected to the other bits, and it's, it's an essential moving part of the story. But I don't like it. And I'm I'm hope I'm hoping that that particular plot line. We see a little bit more on it in Grief of Stones, and I'm hoping that it'll have more resolution mm. in It feels like it will the third it, one. It will in the third one. Mm. Yeah. Fingers crossed. To- Tomb of Dragons is a very like portentous yeah. title. Well, is it in the second book that you find out? No, it's in the first one where they tell you what happened to the dragon in, in Amalo's mountains, right? Uh it was uh, it was in this book. Okay. They say yeah. that um there there was what one two many there was a golden dragon in the mountains and they have all these epic myths and songs about it but it turned out the mining company killed it to get to the the ore yeah. of gold in <laughs> gold the mountain and silver. yeah protecting yeah which is so fucking capitalist yeah. horseshit i love <laughs> that's it. great uh yes there are these giant fire-breathing lizards who uh you know able to fly uh clearly what we need to do is kill them so we can get at the shiny rocks yeah that sounds about right so tomb of dragons could be something epic or it could be a throwaway line having to do with like he goes to visit a mine that's called the tomb of dragons (laughs) who knows this i mean this author is very you you know what to expect um what about you scott Um, yeah, personally, my favorite part, definitely the, like, the sort of, um, Thara's no good, very bad day, where it starts on the, um, uh, the going to fight, <laughs> <That's so good. laughs> going to fight the ghoul, or hunt down the ghoul, and then ending up yeah. in the, um, in the ordeal. Um, I think that was kind of the, and, and mind you, it's also sort of the most action-packed part of the book. Um, I was, I'm not totally in love with the mystery-solving part of it. Um, that's just maybe a non a, a genre thing that's that I'm not as, as big a, as big on um, trying to sort of hunt down these these murderers and you know the people's names and stuff I was finding myself a little bit bored by that um, I do like there were there were good things in each of those plots um, but overall I felt myself less interested in them mostly I was just like can we get back to our opera boyfriend so that we can see another scene with him please <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> Uh, but like I said, like the advantage of the sort of scattershot approach uh, was that th- while I did not like everything, there was definitely stuff in there that I was really happy about. So uh, my favorite parts, uh, for sure, the world building. Mm. Um, I am a, a slut for wor- good world building, yeah. uh, as anyone uh, who has talked to me about any property will tell you. World building and lizard um, men, we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a, I have a brand. And Lawrence of Arabia too. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, but Lauren, he's just, he's, it's true. Yeah, I got nothing. I got no defense there. Same with Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's charisma, man. Like Charisma and lizard men. I can make an argument connecting that performance of Lawrence of Arabia with Jakar. I could do it. And then back to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then probably up over to Pike if I really wanted to. Like, I can get there. It's neither here nor there. Uh, the world building does it for me. I, I I think it's rich and messy and complicated and 
sometimes a little contradictory because it's like life and it feels it hits that sweet spot. I love world building that feels rich and detailed and deep and not like a wiki. Mm. And that mm-hmm. is that Venn diagram is way narrower than one would expect because a lot of writers today will either take all the fantasy tropes and be like, my elves have purple eyes ho, 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 and think they've done something clever or my elves don't have pointy ears. Like they'll do some fucking superficial horse shit and then just go write a fantasy novel. That's fine. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But you're not going to, you know, not going to earn a thumbs up for me on your world building efforts. And then you have other stuff like other works who go out and they do so much world building. It's like they've got a fucking giant wiki going on. And that's too much in the sense that like, it's not for the story. It's just like this person literally just wants to write a wiki. And then they wrote a novel and like, that's fine, but that's not what I enjoy. I like, there has to also be something to read besides a bunch of wiki articles. Uh, God love him. We go on a tangent. I love some of Brandon Sanderson's novels, but some of them I'd rather just read the Wikipedia, like the, the, what do you call it? The copper mind article about it. Because I cannot get through a 1200 page novel. I'd rather just read a wiki summary about what all the magic powers do. Like that's kind of where I am with a lot with some of his books. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you hit like the, the ones where it's like, you spool up the audiobook and it's like 48 hours remain. And you're like, I got, I got my, I got my, you know, money's worth with that credit. And he keeps accidentally yeah. writing more trilogies in certain worlds. It's like, okay, dude. <laughs> yeah. And like, love him, but I, I love Mistborn. Yeah. I like, I love some of the books he's written. It's no, no diss yeah, yeah, on yeah. his general world building. I mean, he certainly is the most like prodigious one. I just mean like sometimes he creates some of these novels where, I feel like it would be better served with just a, a wiki somewhere. Um, anyway, that's one of my favorite things. I also just really love Pelthenior. Uh, he is impish and uh, fun. He's just great. I think he's just such a, a fun character. Um, and I he's think his kind. contrast. Yeah. And he's kind. And that's one of the other things I like about this book is the the good people are the kind people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Honora, God love you. Should you, you should be so lucky in life to have one friend as good a friend to you as Honora is to Kelahar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's known Kelahar six months and he is ready to fucking go to bat for Kelahar. And he is, he just wants to take care of him. He wants him to be well. And that's, fuck, man, that's not. You don't always get that from people that you've known for six years, much less six months. Mm, true. So yeah. uh, I think that's great. Uh, I love that this book is a mystery novel. It's a, you know, a novel. And the main protagonist literally could not fight his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> he is a delicate little flower. There's not a... He he is not a Chandler-esque pistol whipper. You know what I mean? He, He's a sad, wet man. His, <laughs> that's the that's the point of divergence, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that like, yeah. you know, he's he's 
he fits all of the criteria for noir detective, except that he's not out there with his like, you know, trusty, trusty revolver and stuff like that. Which you I know. think he, yeah, and uh, and and reading Chandler's own words, that's not the important part of being a, a noir yeah. project protagonist. Yeah. It's about being a good yeah. man, and he is a good. Yeah, man. yeah. no, absolutely, yeah. and I totally yeah, agree. Yeah. I just, it's one of those things that I like yeah. about him and about this book is that it's there's no violence. And I got nothing against violence. I just think it's really refreshing that this character is successful because of his empathy, even when he's miserable. That's what makes his power work. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if that's in this book or the other one. I don't care. It's not I got the impression book. already. So it's mentioned he in this He says book. at one point. Yeah. It's in the second one. I'm remembering now. Somebody asks him if, uh, if prelates of, if witnesses for the, uh, for the dead burn out. Or can you yeah, can he, you ignore it? And he says, I think it's in this one actually. Yes. Yeah, he he describes he describes burnout briefly in this one. Yeah, and he says, you know, if you stop feeling, if you stop caring, it stops working. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's great that like his superpower is that he he he, he listens. He's only ever been out listened by one person. The fucking emperor. Brief sidebar. I need to go back to Goblin Emperor and reread that scene. Mm-hmm. But it this is fascinating to have a scene from two different perspectives because we've got Thara who's f- like flashing back to that scene and being like, you know, the the uh the emperor like extracted this information <laughs> from me like skillfully. And I'm fairly certain that in that screen, in that scene in the Goblin Emperor, Maya is just sitting there blue screening. <laughs> yeah. It does. <laughs> DVD logo bouncing around. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It's yes, going to hit the like, corner. It's going to hit the corner. <laughs> guys, guys, it's... There it is. Yeah, he just... that, and, uh, that's, and I think that's one of the hallmarks of this series in general, is that Maya's the same way. Maya's superpower is that he befriends people. Mm. Yeah. He he shows kindness to every to everyone he runs into and makes a whole bunch of allies kind of accidentally because he just doesn't know how else to operate he's just too precious and doesn't have like a cruel bone he does he has one sharp pointy like shiv that he has named (laughs) setheris in his head Mm. yes but other than (laughs) that one he doesn't have a cruel impulse in his body other than the shiv and so he's he just makes friends kind of because that's what that's how he operates Similar to uh, to Kelahar, his calling, his whole life is is listening to people and being empathic to people, and I think that's dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the the flip The flip side of that, though, um, is that if if the magic works because Kelahar is that empathic, that seems a little bit dark to me. Is that that's kind of saying? That mm-hmm. everybody else mm-hmm. is not empathic enough for this magic to work. Well, not I will necessarily, say, but yeah. But it could be saying there that is a bit. an X factor. There is an X factor to his magic for sure. Yeah, but but yeah, but I mean, I would say that the I would say that like you know the the implication that you burn out, like that you burn out of your magical ability by becoming like emotionally jaded, like that's fucking dark too. Yeah, and like yeah. That's a great metaphor. Yeah. That like if you get too if you get too jaded, you lose your magic. And that's yeah. a thing that happens to everyone. Something I don't like about this book, I would say it's that it's it is not 
user friendly. <laughs> uh, the yeah, while you're reading it and listening to it, and I, I'm a habitual re-listener. This is this series with Goblin Emperor and these two books are comfort listens for me. I have in the last two years, I think <clears throat> I think I've listened to this book on audiobook like four times. While I'm listening to it, it's all there. It's all in my head. But as you've seen tonight, when it's when I'm not actively listening to this book, the enormous volume of specialized vocabulary falls out of my head. Uh, yeah. And that's both dope in that there's it's the world building is so rich, but also maybe a little too much. Maybe a yeah. little too much. Uh especially if you're not someone who goes in for that that stuff, it makes it intimidating and maybe not as uh not as welcoming an experience. And so there are people I suspect who ordinarily I think would get into this book who, you know, hit 17 terms for church hierarchy in Uthuvarajan and are just like, nope. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. And, and like Michael pointed out, the, um, you know, the Goblin Emperor is a little bit better on that because people have secondary identities and stuff like that, that, you know, you can have in your mind the Lord Chancellor and that that dude that does something with the parliament and like the big priest guy and like, you know, Maya's secretary and like the widow empress and like you can have you can have all of those people like listed in your head by role and like patch in the names later but versus here like the you know just people yeah you know that that you know that other priest who's like the underling of the head priest and like the name starts with like some sort of letter late in the alphabet <laughs> there's two shitty priests and one nice everybody there, else there was people. there was a whole segment where i was mixing up um Zinarin and the other Vanessar. Yes. And I was like, aha. So then they're clearly, it's just smashed smushed together. They're, they're just smushed together. And their name is Vanazarin. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, at least it's easy. The, the good priests have names at the start of the alphabet and the bad ones have names at the end of the oh, alphabet. There you go. Oh no. That just adds another layer to the it. The thing though. is, I'm not wrong though. We have Anora <laughs> Shenivar. And we yep. have Thara Kalahar, and then we have Zanarin and uh, Venezar. So, you know, well, the only, th the only hole in your theory is that uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm looking up now, I believe that uh, Venezar's first name is, starts with an A. Yeah, but this is, you know, Kal Kalahar and... Um, yeah, Kelhar and uh, Chenevar are, are both at the start of the alphabet. We're we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. It's still yeah. works. Plus, plus if, you, if you start if you start doing Vernezar. given names, then Thara is nearer the end than the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, my last bit here at the end. Uh, I love the narration on this audiobook. Um, I strongly believe that the audiobook is one of the better ways to consume this series because mm -hmm. it lets you sort of immerse yourself in the in the names. If you're Without if you're an audiobook to... person at right, least. Right. If you're an audiobook because I'm person. just I'm just not an audiobook person um for various reasons I just don't really consume things through audio so much. Uh you know, yeah. the, no, the totally complete legit. irony of me appearing on a podcast is not lost here. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, I think if you're a podcast person, I think these are great or uh, an audio person. These are great audio books because they, by being in the vocab, in the, the, uh, the vocabulary and having the consistent pronunciation and being in the moment, I think it helps kind of absorb it in usage. I am curious how people rank the, or how, how people rank the audiobook narrators of this book as compared to the Goblin Emperor one. Cause I have my ranking, but I'm curious where yours are. I would put them about the same personally that I felt like they both did a really good job when I first opened up the witness for the dead audiobook i was like oh dang it's got a different narrator i really like the narrator for goblin emperor boo um but then like i warmed up to the narrator for this one really fast um and i did like the choice of having a narrator whose voice matches that of thara's much better um that was a very good choice that's Um, exactly where i was going to go with that his ability to hit that gravelly that gravelly voice uh, yeah. I think is really important for for this audiobook. And considering that the audiobook especially is essentially a noir monologue. Yeah. Just the entire thing. Mm-hmm. You got you gotta have you gotta have the the bit of the the noir monologue voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I cannot do. I personally think that the the narrator for witness, it's the same narrator, by the way, for uh the second book, um Grief of Stones. Uh, is fantastic. I think he has nuance and does the various other characters really, really well. But more than anything, he manages to put a lot of depth into into Kalahar's voice that needs to be mm-hmm. there. Otherwise, this would not work as an audiobook at all. And yeah. he manages to nail the pronunciation of all this gibberish every <laughs> single time, which is yeah. real important. Oh, yeah. He's he's slightly less consistent than the one for Goblin Emperor, actually. Upon re listening a number of times, there are a few points where he's not like a hundred percent consistent. But like, I cannot fault him on that because like he leaps and bounds ahead of me on that. Consistent enough that you yeah. don't notice it unless you're kind of listening for mm-hmm. it. Um, there's a famous edition of the Silmarillion that was narrated apparently by someone that did not have good notes. Because his pronunciation of a bunch of the Quenya is all fucking over the place. <laughs> and it drives people crazy. I personally rank it higher than Goblin Emperor just because I think that uh, it is, I think it's a richer listening experience. And I don't know how to quantify that. Mm-hmm. But I think I love listening to the Goblin Emperor. But I, I think that the narrator has a much more, I don't know, just a richer, more, more sort of uh nuanced voice than the than the guy that does the goblin emperor. Yeah, I think that the moment that like where you're like ah uh, it was like the moment the moment that I like lashed onto this audiobook narrator and was like no 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 this is good is right right at the beginning right after that first meeting with um Benazar and Zanarin and mm-hmm. um Enora where Thara is like you know, I have to go to the public baths. I felt unclean. <laughs> yes. And that that's the moment where it's like, oh, oh, no, this is this is a good time. Um yeah. the, that like I, I felt unclean. It was very good. I I think that part of that I I see what you mean. I think that part of that for me is the difference between first person and third person. Mm. Um 
and like being like third person with a single PO like a single POV character is does have a very different feel yeah. from first person. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's a whole different on. level of internality and like literally getting into the POV character's head. Um I, I also think, love how he does Pelth anyway. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. I think that I think that the Goblin Emperor narrator does have a broader range of like voices though. Mm. And I think like did a better you know, did a better job potentially of differentiating like the huge cast. Um and not, you know, in particular, not just with tone of voice or with accent, but with like speech mannerisms and stuff like that. That I think the narrator for mm. um Witness for the Dead doesn't quite do as much of, but they are both excellent. Well, any closing thoughts from anyone? I, I would like to do one one last little bit here, which is sure. so Scott and Michael, neither of you have read Grief of Stones yet, correct? correct? Um, mm-hmm. Can you each give a couple of predictions for what you think will happen in Ooh, that book? Good call. Oh, geez. Um, I didn't, I, uh, Jude, I didn't want to do it for this one because I felt like there was no way to get predictions no, for yeah, this one off of Goblin no, Emperor. Not, not even yeah. a chance. But. But now, now we can get predictions for Grief, Grief of Stones. So what do you guys think will happen? It's too soon. We're, you guys already said that we're going to get more Palthenior, but it's too soon for that to be, uh, what's the polite word to say? Uh, consummated, I guess is the way to put that one. <laughs> um, uh, yes, polite. <laughs> saying, I saying, could have chosen a much less polite term. Yes. Are they um, going to fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think yeah i don't think that's i think it's too soon for that to yes. uh, to happen and um, and i don't think it's really in the voice uh that addison is going for to yeah. have it be that crude you oh, know whether whether they would you know do a more f- fade to black <laughs> evening uh yes i i had a very pleasant evening at Palthenior's, and you know the next morning you know i gathered up my frock coat um yeah i could see that but I, I personally don't think they're even going to sort of acknowledge that it is a relationship in the next book. Um, I think that might, that seems like more like a third book kind of right. thing to me. Yeah. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, I, I, the knowing that I, other than the like pit of vipers thing being sort of left hanging, everything else seems to have sort of resolved, um, as, as terms of like hanging threads. So that's kind of the, the remainder is that they're going to do some more with that. Um, but I don't have anything specific beyond that. Um, ma- Any predictions for, for what's going to happen with Thara, you know, his arc? I mean, I think he's just going to stay sad and wet for a little bit while. <laughs> for a little while. I think he's just going to be a, continue to be a pathetic man that we all love. I, I think, I think that we're, we're going, we're going to see, a, I don't think Scott's wrong. I think that we're going to see a bit of character development <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what direction that's going to go, but some of it, I would think, is going to be Thara needs to actually deal with the fact that he has been quietly grieving his ex for yeah. how long now? Yeah, this yeah, this yeah. is this yeah. is something that is sitting around, and he has clearly not addressed a bunch of that grief. Yeah, he's just marinated in the and trauma. I, I go and like, I look at the title, "Grief of Stones," and I see grief and stones, and my yeah. mind immediately goes to who has grief? Thara does. Yeah, stones. Hmm. Where do we see stones in the book? Ghouls. Yeah, headstones. Headstones. 
yeah, dead. Yeah. That's that's a good that's a good catch. Um, we're we're going to be we're probably going to deal with a little bit more of that lore is my intuition, but I don't have anything to base it on because I'm just going off of a title. Oh no, this is this is this is great stuff. This is great okay. stuff. Mm-hmm. I, top yep. tier content. I, I very much hope yep. that uh, Thara is put into another ridiculous colored garment at some point. <laughs> that is a, that's not a prediction. That's just a hope. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Let's think. Does that happen in the second book? Well, don't spoil it. Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> is this is we 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 can't know it. Otherwise, it's not the same. Um, yeah. It has to be okay. So now now our poor boy Thara Kelhar uh, is going to have to wear you know a top hat and you know a frilly pink suit that comes with a built-in feather boa. Um, <laughs> like just just Oof. like go go wild. Um, I mean, Pelthony girl would look great in that. Of course, of course, but I mean, but we, but we, we, full... we, we know that it's been established that Pelthony girl will look great yeah. in anything. Yeah, that's true. We're we're in full fan Pel- fiction therapy, uh, fan fiction uh, corner at this point. So I want I want to also say that like uh, Thara Kalahar at a drag show is something that I definitely would love to have in my life. <laughs> that seems like a, that seems like a good time. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, I'm not sure Thara would find it great. No, he wouldn't. But but we. We enjoy no, his yeah. discomfort. <laughs> I'm not sure I entirely do, but you know, I can I can sort of live with it for <laughs> the image. Amount. I guess we both love him, and we want to put him in a box and shake it. I mean, that's how you get interesting fiction. Yeah, exactly. You 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 take your character and you torment them, <sighs> and, fi- and fiction comes out. You know, did did nobody learn Shelley's lesson that that Mary Shelley tried to teach us <laughs> that maybe if you create life, you got to take care of it. But yes, of course, we're talking about characters in a book where the whole point is that they have to suffer. Yeah. <sighs> uh, speaking of fan fiction, uh, it may interest you to know that there are a good number of fics on AO3 Ooh. involving that the uh, Thara Pelthenior pairing. Yeah, I predict. How, do, do any of them have the yellow frock coat? <laughs> I don't know. There are 631 works under Goblin Emperor as a series, mm-hmm. um, but actually a lot of them are Goblin Emperor itself. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of to, fanfic meat there for them to chew on. <laughs> yes, yeah. so to speak. Uh, there's there's 40 in uh, specifically in the Thara Kelahar Iana Pelthenior tag. That's a healthy number. Which Excellent. Is a, uh, which is enough that you could, which is a good number that you could read all all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's a manageable number. <laughs> I really, I really do have this like this fantasy that will not go away of like that. Pelthenior went into that thrift shop and bought the yellow coat, <laughs> and that it will come back. I love it. I guess this is a spoiler for Grief, Grief of Stones that the yellow coat does not come back. That that specific yeah, garment does that, not come that back. That is really good though. The- <laughs> okay, okay. To be fair though. Do we actually remind me? Do we see Kelhar get rid of the yellow coat? Because yes, my, yes, I, yes. He's, there's he a whole thing about store. how it's sold and how he was like, yeah, it was a good garment, but not for me. And there's a whole like to the second right. Hand. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. You're right. Right. Because right. remember, he goes to the second hand store. He goes to the second hand store and like drops off like and like you know drops off the coat and like gets a bunch of stuff and then like you know gets like waylaid with like plot and then. The, the thrift store dude is like, I thought you were never coming back for your clothes, man. Uh, it may, Anna, I searched within the, the uh, Thara Kalahar Iana Pelthenior tag 
for the word coat and I found one one result. So you may <laughs> at, you may have something. Or or we found or we found Anna's account. <laughs> <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> well, I d- I do not write fan fiction, so that's what somebody who doesn't who does write fan fiction would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, on that note, uh, talking about fan fiction, uh, the next book in the series, The Grief of Stones, uh, will be the next thing that we cover on this podcast. Uh, when that will go up, I don't know. When we get around to it, kind of how this works. Thanks very much, everyone, for being here we didn't introduce anybody um <laughs> we're good podcasters yep that's on me guys guys we've got to cultivate an air of mystery <laughs> um should we go back should we do that and then have aaron splice it in here from the end it's not a bad idea actually sure. yeah all right um i'm gonna finish up the ending here and then we'll do it all right. right at the tail end uh scott you can be found in all the usual places. We'll put all your various mm-hmm. socials in the show notes. Michael remains a man of mystery. <laughs> not really. I'm just not really interacting with most of the social stuff. Man, of, like mystery. man of mystery. Yes. yes. Yeah. Let's, let's play it off as yeah. that. Yep. Uh, all right. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's your friendly producer, Aaron here. I have not come up with a new ending and I don't feel like it right now. So, um, Imagine a our trash runneth over ending right here. Uh, or maybe I'll just put the bad pod credits on. All views expressed on the show are our own. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. Recording. We missing any pieces? Uh, okay. So we do the intro. Uh, yeah. <laughs> rewind. Have fun with this, Aaron. Um, rewind. <laughs>